This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, everybody? Thursday, feeling pretty good. Brother from Another is here again. We are back two years and one day old. Got a great show lined up. First of all, appreciate everybody watching on Peacock TV. Love having you. Love seeing you here on Peacock. Listening on Sirius XM Channel 85. YouTube, we love you. Twitter, follow us. Check us out every everywhere you listen to your podcast. Listen to brother from another great lineup today. Can't wait to talk to Connor Rogers. Connor Rogers, by the way, is a football guy, but a serious Mets fan. So every time I talk to him, it seems like the lead is shrinking. <laughs> every time I talk to Connor Rogers, I mean, like the last time we talked to him, hey, Connor, what's that lead? Oh, it's not, you know, hey, it's getting pretty slim. About three games, four games. Time for that, you know, two games. Now it's like a half game. So talk to him about the Mets and how he feels about the Mets and NFL, of course, always talk with Dave Zirin, who can talk about pretty much anything. And I have a special gift today, a gift for our first guest in just a couple minutes. I don't want to spoil the gift, but I got a gift for Ryan Harris. Uh, But before we get to that, I just want to say, we always talk about rivalries in football. It's Thursday Night Football. Uh, Tonight, you got Kansas City, LA Chargers in Kansas City, two great quarterbacks in Justin Herbert and Patrick Mahomes and high flying, high scoring, on and on. I understand. Look, I'm not doing a game, so I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to keep the audience with the game tonight. I'm just gonna be real with you. We say all these things prematurely. It's a rivalry in the sense that they both play in the same division. It's a rivalry in the sense that both of the quarterbacks are really good, but. Chargers Chiefs is not a rivalry yet. It will be one day. Justin Herbert, I think, will continue to grow and the Chargers will catch up with them. He's far ahead of them. They're, they're, they're looking down the road. He's about four or five miles ahead of the rest of the organization. Maybe they can catch up and they'll have a complete team. But until such time, nah. Nah. And I'm not saying they won't win tonight. I'm just saying big picture. Big picture. And maybe, you know, part of the reason I started this way, because I feel some kind of way about the anointing of certain teams and the ignoring of other teams. Kansas City is always in the championship mix, is always in the playoff mix. Uh, Either they go to the Super Bowl and win it, they go to the Super Bowl and lose it, they go to the AFC championship game all the time, winning or losing. They are a championship caliber team. Let's not forget the Kansas City Chiefs and the Chargers are just trying to get there. As, uh, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I can't wait for this. I got to go to it now. Uh, let's, let's go to Ryan Harris. Let's go to Ryan Harris uh, pretty soon. But before we get to Ryan Harris, I, I want to talk about a team that he covers, uh, that he commentates on. Those would be the Denver Broncos. We talked about this a little bit the other day. The Broncos pay Russell Wilson a lot of money. Ryan, they pay Russell Wilson a lot of money. It's a one-point game. They're well-positioned, good field position. It's fourth and five. And they take Russell Wilson off the field and go to a really a good kicker, a good kicker. But I just want to remind everybody, that game was in Seattle, not Denver. <laughs> so in Denver, a 64-yarder for the win? Sure. I like McManus's chances there. In Seattle... Not really feeling it. 
What's up, man? How you feel about it? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Nathaniel Hackett already said he'll go for it next time. I think a lot of people were shocked by it. But Brandon McManus is a Super Bowl champion. He's a heck of a kicker. You give that opportunity. The real problem, though, Michael, you had both your running backs fumble, one of yeah. them on literally on the goal line. If that doesn't happen, you're not in that situation. But hats off to the Seattle Seahawks. They played a detail-oriented, really close game. And one thing people do not realize about Pete Carroll, he practices tackling every day at practice. And sometimes it's pursuit tackles from behind by the D-line or it's linebackers taking angles. I mean, that was Seattle just, you could tell, they were they were trying to do everything they could to win that game. And, of course, they got the brilliant offensive mind of Shane Waldron. But if both the running backs for the Broncos don't fumble, it's a very different game. And Coach Hackett will never take out Russell Wilson on fourth and five again. All right, well, let's hear that. Uh, speaking of, of Coach Hackett, still seems strange to call him that. Just one game in, I'm still thinking Nathaniel Hackett. Coach Hackett, not there yet, but I'll get there. Let's hear him because I will give him credit. Uh, after seeing what I saw on Monday night, uh, I thought I'd hear something different on Tuesday. Here's Nathaniel Hackett talking about the decision. Looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. Um, just not, not you know, one of those things. You look back at it and you say, of course we should go for it. We missed the field goal. Um, but in that situation, we had a plan. I mean, we had a plan. We knew that 46 was the mark. Uh, we were third and 15, I think, third and 13. I'm more upset about that play before it to lose yards, to be able to, you know, getting that there would have definitely uh, been better to be able to call that same play and get extra yards. But um, he dumps it out to Javante. Javante makes a move, goes a lot farther than I think we had anticipated. We were expecting to go for it on fourth down. And then you hit the mark, you know, the mark that we had all set before we started. We said uh, 46 yards. 46-yard line was where we wanted to be, and uh, we got there. So we had to make the decision if we wanted to give it to, uh, you know, Brandon, and we did. And it didn't work. It sucks, but, hey, that's part of it. You know, it's a combination of a lot of people, and, and it, in the end, it lies on me. I made that decision, and that was our plan. That's what we said. That's the yard we had to get to. We all knew it. That's what we said in the huddle before we did it, and we got there. We made that decision. I mean, every game we want to win. Every game for us, we go into the mentality that we want to win it. We, we think we can win, and we're going to do everything we can, and um, that's just how the game goes. You know, That's part of being in, this, uh, being in this seat, being in this profession, is that this stuff's going to happen at all times, and it's been happening you know, my whole career, even all the way back when my dad was coaching, and you're prepared for that. You understand that. And, uh, I mean, hey, you just got to keep grinding. That's the only thing I know how to do is to keep putting my head down, keep working, making sure these guys believe and understand the things that we need to correct to be able to get better so we can win some football games. You know, Ryan, when I heard that yesterday, I said, good for him. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a couple days ago, uh, you know, good for him, good for him. You know, a lot of, a lot of coaches would have been defiant. But as I listened to it, like, the, for the fourth, the fifth, or sixth time, I'm like, well, wait a minute. On one hand, he's saying we should have gone for it. On the other hand, he's kind of giving you his rationale. He's trying to explain it away of why they <laughs> didn't go for it. So do you believe they should have gone for it or not? I don't know. Uh, I just, what, what did you think of it? I mean, I think you got Russell Wilson, and you've been moving the ball all day long. They had nearly twice the yardage of Seattle. They were getting what they wanted. They just were playing sloppy, uh, very sloppy football. I think put it in Russell Wilson's hands and – See what you can get. Well, and you had all those timeouts as well, right? So there was time to think about it. And that, to me, is where you really see the, the thinking process. I, I'm The most important thing is he took accountability. The number one thing new head coaches do in the NFL, they, they get fired before they even get hired because they refuse to take accountability. And Nathaniel Hackett mm. owned it. That's yeah. the most important thing. But number two, he described, hey, we didn't expect to get that far that much on third down. So we were expecting to go for it. And what he's saying there is they're talking during that whole play of, okay, our fourth and nine play, our fourth and ten play, this is what we're going to go. Oh, it's fourth and five. Uh, from where? From the 46? Well, we've been here in the 46. So the, he kind of took you into where they were thinking mentally. And so they had this number on the field of the 46-yard line. That's what Brandon McManus had told them. That's a super confident kicker, by the way. So you could yeah. kind of hear in his explanation the timing that was happening. They were trying to change the play to a fourth and five play, but they were at the 46. Let's kick the field goal win and get the heck out of here. But, uh, but yeah, I'm with you. It just he, he would say it himself. 
Go for it. And he's got to learn that there's a little more time. I mean, one of the things about being elite in the NFL, the play clock doesn't go to zero. It's zero and one, right? It's not a 17-game season. It's a 21-game season if you want to win. He has to learn that kind of calm quickness that you need to execute, something Bill Belichick's really great at and a lot of the other coaches. But I'll tell you what, too, Michael, it's the first time that Brandon Staley looks smart. I mean, he, I don't think he ever goes for a field goal, head coach of the Chargers. And, and Nathaniel Hackett needed a little bit more of that in him Monday night. All right, so what do you think uh, about the Broncos? I know it's 0-1, 0-1, first game of the season. Nobody's overreacting, yet everybody's overreacting. That's what we do. <laughs> it's Americana. That's what makes football so great. But if you just – you saw them out there. Now, against a, a real opponent on the road, facing some adversity, they lose that game. As you look at the Broncos and see them with Russell Wilson officially, how do you feel about this team versus the rest of the division and the rest of the NFL? Well, we're going to take get a great look at the rest of the division tonight. I mean, who can win the West in Week 2 with the Chargers and Chiefs? But I think the Broncos learned the most important lesson that you have to learn with a future Hall of Fame quarterback. You're not going to win games just because that quarterback's on your roster. You have to execute. You have to win the turnover battle. You have to be able to run the football. And a lot of times, and this is not just sports, this is all of us at work, if there's a superstar on the team, you think, oh, they're going to handle it all for us. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. You have to go out and earn every inch, especially in the NFL. And that will serve them well. Look, look, they got Houston this week. Houston's no pushover. They have the top two tacklers in the NFL. They got that tie from the Colts. Houston's really building something. So they're going to have a great test against the Houston Texans to get those details right. And that's the best thing for Russell Wilson as well, because he may have been coaching guys up and they may not have been paying attention. All this does or doesn't matter. But you have to be at your best to play with one of the best players in Russell Wilson. And I believe they learned that lesson Monday night in a very embarrassing fashion. You know what, Ryan, I got to admit, I underestimated the Seattle fan base. I, I like to make fun of them every now and then because they take themselves so seriously with the whole 12 thing. And they got 12 up, you know, in, in the stadium and the 12. And they really think that they're <laughs> affecting the game. Uh, when your team's no good, when your team's no good, you're not really affecting the game that much. And when your team's pretty good, yeah, everything, everything can lead to a victory. But anyway, I didn't think that they would come at Russell Wilson as hard as they did. I really didn't. I was surprised by the booing, by a, a little, um, there was some real hateration in that stadium. Did it surprise you? Did any aspect of that response surprise you? It did not. You know, fans, you have a right to feel your feelings. It's in the Geneva Convention, right? Fans can feel their feelings. <laughs> and at the end of the day, yeah. fans, you know, they, they spend a lot of money on Russell Wilson gear. They may have the green Russell Wilson, the blue Russell Wilson, the white Russell Wilson. That's, that's almost $1,000 in jerseys. I'd be pissed too, let alone if you got some for your kids. But that's good for Russell Wilson because he knows at the end of the day, the, the city of Seattle still loves him. He's involved heavily in the community there. Uh, but it makes it easy for him to focus on where he is at. But I'll tell you, Michael, that stadium is the loudest stadium I have ever played in. It is so loud, it feels like someone's banging a snare drum next to either ear. You can barely hear the quarterback. All you can hear is just like the syllable. I mean, you can only hear that because it's so loud. And that 12th man is absolutely real in Seattle, especially because they get a special guest every game to come up there like Dave Matthews from the Dave Matthews Band or other Mm. rock stars and actors. So that crowd, that's, that's entertainment for sure. Well, you actually might hear that snare drum. My 11-year-old son is a drummer. He's in the next room. So he, you actually you actually might hear that. I might hear it. Uh, I hear it all the time. You might hear it too. And you already uh, referenced it, the rest of the division, how tough it is in the AFC West. We'll get to find that out. We'll see it tonight. You know, what do you expect to see from the Chargers and Chiefs? I still look at the Chiefs as the class of the division. How do you see it? Well, the Chiefs are the class of the division, and they proved that last week against the Arizona Cardinals. Not only did they get Travis Kelsey their touchdown early on, uh, but then they used Travis Kelsey as a decoy for the rest of their four red zone trips, each resulting in a touchdown. And what impresses me the most is not just that they had a defense, but offensively, 
they were able to still run the football. I mean, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has hit another gear. I think the gear that everybody expected that he had coming from LSU. And then Isaiah Pacheco, this guy is amazing to watch. Everybody watching the game tonight, look for number 10 on the Chiefs. This guy ran a 4-3-7-40 at the Combine, and he looks like he runs faster than that at the line of scrimmage. So the Chiefs have a potent run game with an experienced pass game, one of the best offensive minds in Andy Reid. And, oh, by the way, their defense is kicking tail, too. So they are the standard to beat. But can you believe it? Justin Herbert's 2-0 at Arrowhead, going for seven touchdowns, no picks, throwing for 70%. He's not going to have Keenan Allen. That will be big. The Chargers did not run the ball as effective in week one against the Raiders. Um, But I I expect this is going to be the first litmus test for who wants the West here in week two. You know, I always uh, tell – I'm going to brag about you for a second here. Ryan, I always tell our guests or people who who watch the show, I'm like, I'm I'm so impressed with Ryan Harris. I mean, (laughs) he's really really smart uh, on TV, great analysis – uh, always has an encouraging word. Uh, you're well-read. you got the books behind you. You're an author yourself, a public speaker. You have a great background. I'm jealous of your background because <laughs> I, I see a Broncos helmet up there. I see Texans helmet. Uh, is that the uh, Army, uh, Army yep, game U.S. Right Army All-American Bowl. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, I think you could use maybe something else. You know, like... Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, you know, you send that to me, I'll put it up on the bookshelf for a show. (laughs) And I want to say thank you for flogging me respectfully. You waited, man. You waited, Mike. That's one of the many reasons why you're the greats. You were so kind. I knew this was coming, but we had you sweating after that first half, man. Uh, oh my but God! I'll tell you what. Yes. What an amazing game, Ohio State Notre Dame. And I'm gonna send you a better one. I'm gonna send you a better one too. I'm gonna send you a better jersey. This is the this is a go out and you know you can get this one dirty, a little muddy, but this is not the authentic. I you know I want to I want to really hook it up for you. This is gonna be back and it's gonna be part of your background. It needs to really be classy. So what happened though? Not just an Ohio State game because okay, I'll take my my dollar with all and pennies. I think I want it all in pennies. Like I said, all in pennies to replicate the whole to replicate the Buckeye look. Um, but I'm more interested in the Marshall game because that I didn't see coming. Oh, my. They lost to Marshall at home. What is wrong with Notre Dame? Well, number one, they can't stop the run. That's what killed them in the game against Ohio State. That was a tight game until a 90-yard drive with 11, I believe it was 11 or 12 plays. And honestly, Michael, nine of them were the same exact run play. Now, you got phenomenal mm. running backs. I'm forgetting his last name right now at Ohio State, but Kayvon is unreal. That kid is going to be a first-round pick. It's not just that he's got a big offensive line, but they ran the football. And I said it after the first game on air. I said, listen, if you can't stop the run, you're going to continue to see it until you stop it. The problem was Marshall came in and ran the exact same plays that Ohio State was running, and Notre Dame defensively couldn't stop it. On top of that, they lost their starting quarterback, and their quarterbacks threw interceptions, two of them in the red zone. Uh, It was a tough game for Notre Dame. And you have to realize, as Notre Dame, you can't look at every game as, hey, this is the biggest game of the year. At Notre Dame, everybody else is coming in that way. You have to say to yourself when you're there, and as we were there at Notre Dame, hey, we're going to punish you for even walking in this hallowed ground. And they need a lot more Mm. of that mentality. They're probably going to make a couple of personnel changes, some young men who are given great effort, but just not playing well enough. Uh, but make no mistake, they are going to continue to have problems unless they can stop the run. And and we didn't even mention the quarterback. So the quarterback's going to be out for a while. So what do you do at the most important position on the field? Well, the good news for Notre Dame, Drew Pine is coming off the pine, and he has experience as recently as last year helping the Irish win a game. He was the backup last year, came in against Wisconsin, and was able to help secure some success he also plays with a great spark guys around him play a little differently there's a lot more urgency at the line of scrimmage something that i like to see because that's how you win uh and he also has a tendency to stare down one receiver the entire route translating into turnovers so he has to reach a new level uh the offensive line has to play better michael we are o-line you and they have not looked like it for one minute so far this season they can do that 
And it's going to be up to Drew Pine to motivate these guys to get to get it right this week against Cal, who's got a great quarterback and Jack Plummer and a talented defense as well. All right, Ryan, always great talking with you. And you are absolutely right. I was watching that game. Now, wait a minute. This is supposed to be this easy victory. Notre Dame was hanging in there at Ohio Stadium, and it was a game uh, until it, well into the fourth quarter. So I thought, I thought, okay, Notre Dame is going to be a little better than I thought they were going to be. They got to go and blow out Marshall. That didn't happen, but that was a really competitive game at Ohio Stadium uh, over Labor Day weekend. Yeah. It was well, fantastic to, you, to be there, too. The atmosphere was nuts. You had LeBron James, Joe Burrow. Hey, Michael, why is Joe Burrow on the sideline of the Ohio State-Notre Dame game? Come on, man. You guys just let anybody in? You guys kicked him out no, and you right. let him back? What's that about? That's right. Hey, he left. He left. What's he doing coming back? <laughs> he left. He's coming back. He, died. he wins a national championship at LSU. We could have used him. And then he comes back. And LeBron. It was him and Justin Fields yep. on the same. They were both on the sideline. I'm like, hey. well, which one of you was the quarterback at Ohio State? Come on, figure right. it out. And, and how about how about how about Bronny teasing Ohio State fans, putting on the Ohio State garb? You see this oh. on Instagram? He put all the Ohio State on. He was like, I'm not committed. Oh man, why are you, know you doing who's that? The most, you know, right? And the most excited was the athletic director for Ohio State, Mr. Smith. He was like, hold on. We're going to get Bronny here. I mean, come on. How many millions of dollars are coming in if they could do that? And it still might happen. Still might. It might happen. But he put the stuff on. Don't don't, don't dress up. And then be like, well, I'm just playing. What oh. could be? We want to see it when it's official. Ryan Harris, always great, man. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Congrats on two years. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Every year, the Super Bowl is the most watched show on TV with over 100 million viewers. Of the top 20 shows in TV history, 19 of them have been Super Bowls. And NFL football dominates any number of other primetime and daytime rating slots. The top 15 most watched shows in September, all of them were NFL games. We are truly talking about a multi-billion dollar corporate leviathan. And as with all iconic corporate brands, this has made the NFL not only a titanic financial force that stands at the top of the sports food chain, but also an incredibly powerful cultural force. Like Disney or Coca-Cola, the NFL has built an incredibly powerful brand identity by selling a very distinct set of cultural ideas and values that people identify with and find meaning in. And with the NFL, what they're selling more than anything else is a vision of America and Americana. Man, I, I was like, oh, I didn't want it to stop. I didn't want it to stop. Hook me from the start. Uh, that is an excerpt from Behind the Shield. Uh, I want to make sure I get it right. The, uh, the cultural politics of NFL football. We have Dave Zirin, sports editor of the nation and uh, doing great work on this documentary. And I really, I can't, I can't wait to see it. I'm, I'm intrigued by the concept and where you're going with it. Uh, just tell us how it, how you got started and, and what the vision for it is. Absolutely. First of all, thanks so much for having me. Big fan of the show. And there is a clip from this show in the documentary with everybody sounding Good. very smart. <laughs> that to me was a no-brainer. <laughs> Where'd sure you find show that clip? 
<laughs> Where'd you find that one? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Always looking for clips. Always. Um, well, for me, this really started, Michael, when there were all these news reports and articles about how the NFL was becoming political because of people like Colin Kaepernick and about how they're bringing politics into the sport. And you heard a lot of people saying, we don't want politics in our NFL. And that really sort of got under my skin because I see the NFL as a political entity unto itself and that the NFL has been political as long as there's been an NFL or at least since the reign of Pete Rozelle, as we talk about in the documentary. And so to put the idea that politics are being put into the sport on the athletes to me is just wrong. And it reminded me of a truism that I really believe is that when people say they don't want sports and politics to mix, what they're really saying is they don't want sports and a certain kind of politics to mix because there are a whole other set of politics that people are all too happy uh, to imbibe in. And what are those politics that, that people are happy with that people will not be put off by? Exactly. I mean, first of all, hyper Americana to the turned up to 11. I mean, if you see the American flags on a football field, I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of more than the field. You know, they're going up into the stands practically. But it's not just about the patriotism. It's about the way the patriotism can often come linked to a sense of hyper-militarism. And I'm talking about, like, the planes going over the stadium. I'm talking about the salute to service events that the NFL does. I'm talking about the scandal uh, that... It was found out by a former senator, by the late senator, John McCain, that the Pentagon was paying the NFL for the purposes of doing these events to the tune of millions and millions of dollars while we have homeless vets in this country. So that's what I talk about in the film. But I also talk about other political ideas as well, like our whole sense about what manhood is in this country. I don't think you can even understand it without understanding football and particularly the National Football League. Um, a lot of our ideas about gender, about masculinity, that comes through NFL football, this idea of being impervious to pain. I mean, think about it. I, I was just watching the NFL on Sunday, as I do. You know, I got to say that as a part of this. You know, I yeah. don't see how you even I don't see how you even talk or write about sports without being able to talk about the National Football League. And they, they said that that one of the teams, I forget which one, was undergoing a regimen of therapy, you know, mental therapy. But they made a big point to say, but we don't call it therapy on our team. We call it mental enhancement or oh. mental preparedness. And right, right. I can't, I'm like, my goodness, it's 2020, 2022. Why not just yeah, say therapy? What's wrong with saying, right, what's wrong yeah. with saying therapy? Well, but, therapy but they don't want to. It's weakness. It's like, it's like, right. it's like a, a terrible train. It's like therapy connotes weakness, which connotes a stereotypical idea of what femininity is, which connotes not being able to be the kind of man that wins on the football field. And that chain still hasn't been broken yet, that link. I mean, when you're doing mental enhancement, I mean, you're on a couch talking to a therapist. Don't call it mental enhancement. And, and I think that, that, so that's what we're talking about in the film, a whole set of ideas that the NFL puts out, whether you agree or disagree with them, they are putting them out. So to me, when players are political, that's just turnabouts fair play. Is it too cynical, Dave, to say that the only reason the NFL is moved to change anything about its politics, about its vision, about its branding, the only reason it's moved to do it uh, is not even public pressure. It's just a financial opportunity. I mean, you think about it. You have that stat there, and we've heard it. Of all the top programs, our NFL programs, mm -hmm. and the revenue just keeps building and building. I saw a story the other day, uh, the New England Patriots, are the second or third most profitable sports franchise in the world. And this is a team that, you know, Robert Kraft bought out of bankruptcy and he paid, he overpaid at the time for $175 million. Now it's worth billions. So why would you, why would that entity be moved to change anything when all it sees is just money coming in? Is that too cynical to say that money is the only, is the only reason they'll change a thing? Oh, no, I don't think that's too cynical. I think that's the reality of the operation. Um, and I think, like, for example, the way I understand why Colin Kaepernick has not yet been signed by an NFL team is that on a very dollars and cents issue, NFL franchise owners think he has more value as a ghost story 
to haunt young players to not speak out, then he has value as a quarterback who can lead you to the Super Bowl. If Pat Mahomes took a knee, I guarantee you there would have been a different calculus. And it could because you don't get rid of a Patrick Mahomes and you, you're willing to abide certain things that you wouldn't abide with others. It's all about dollars and cents. Eric Winston, who used to head the NFL Players Association, he had this great line where he said, owning an NFL team is like being a bartender during spring break. You don't have to be very good at it to make tons of money out of the operation. And I live in D.C. I've got firsthand knowledge of what it means to not be a good steward of a franchise, yet still make ungodly sums of money. So it's all about money. I mean, that that's why this issue about that, that relates to people like Deshaun Watson, that relates to the Buffalo Bills punter that they had to release. That's why for the NFL, that is such existential TNT, because the NFL is so popular in the United States, but overseas... They're not really having it. And that's an interesting discussion unto itself. But that also means they need to build out their audience of women in the United States, which make up between, I've read, between 45 and 47 percent of all fans. So they need to be sensitive to issues that they weren't sensitive to in the past. Why is that? You said it, Michael. Dollars and cents. Okay, so what's our uh, what, what's our leverage here as fans? I mean, you you mentioned it, and we've done this. I'm not sitting here trying to uh, flog ourselves. You're a football fan. I'm a football fan. Uh, I will be watching Thursday night football. I'll be watching Monday night. I'll be watching Sunday at one. Sunday at one is, as a matter of fact, Dave. I'll even tell you. Uh, my my wife said something the other day. She said, "Yeah, um, you know, we're having some event." And I said, "You know, what day is it?" She said, "Sunday." Now, what time is it? You know, two o'clock. I said, like, who would who would do this? Who would plan an event at two o'clock on Sunday during football season? I was offended. Okay, so we are all kind of in. We we've kind of been sucked into the vortex, but we got to have some leverage as fans, yeah. Dave. How do we have? How do we football fans get leverage just in case we see something that is just so awful that we say, okay, enough's enough. You must change. What do we do? Well, first of all, let me say that when we're done with this program, I'm going to watch my son play high school football. So this is not something that we're allergic to in my house. It's And this is my son's demand that he's going to play high school football. And I'll tell you, I'm going to answer that by talking about my son's high school team, because I found that football, by just the experience of him being on this team with a terrific coach, a terrific atmosphere, terrific attitudes and values they try to instill in the players, that football doesn't have to be what the NFL is. That the NFL and the people who really run the NFL, that's not Roger Goodell, that's the obviously the franchise owners, they use the NFL as a particular kind of political weapon in this country. And we have the right as fans to say we don't want that. So I think as fans, the most important thing is to be an engaged fan, you know, to know what political causes your franchise owner is putting your tax dollars into after the new stadium was built. I mean, it takes some work to be an informed fan. I'm not saying it doesn't, but to be conversant in the issues around CTE, you should be conversant in those issues. When a player speaks out, you should take the time to listen, because if they're good enough to cheer for, they're good enough to hear. And these are some very basic points that I think we can approach the game with. And I think with that comes confidence. And with confidence, I think we could say to the NFL, that we have a certain set of values as fans that we don't want to see you abrogate because if you do, we might not be fans for long. Uh, and final question I have for you, and and okay, this is going to take some uh, this is going to take some threading and some some uh, some storyboarding just to get the right answer. I know this is I'm asking you a very complicated uh, question, and it's about the franchise. In the town that you're in, they're now called the Washington Commanders. Thank God for that. So the Washington Commanders, and you mentioned Daniel Snyder. So if the NFL is this force, this political force, and I agree with you there, and almost anything it puts out there is successful, why not a simpleton like me can say, well, wait a minute. Well, you could just kind of throw Daniel Snyder to the side, put in a replacement level owner, and nothing, the business will not be interrupted a bit. So what's the big deal? Why not? Why does Daniel Snyder, who has been a stain 
who has been the guy that, you know, they close that door when visitors come over, they close the door where Daniel Snyder is. Oh, no, you don't want to see that. Let's come over here. Let's I'll give you the tour over here. Why, why do they continue to have him in a league when it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, business sense to have him there? Yeah, especially since I've heard it on good authority that even when an NFL franchise owner says hi to him, like, hey, Dan, he says, that's Mr. Snyder. So we're not exactly talking about somebody uh, who you want to get caught with at a cocktail party. Um, I think it really comes down to this. Dan Snyder has been very smart about making friends in the ownership group. From what I understand from reporting, from talking to people, it's like high school. You know, it's like it's like Mean Girls. Uh, and so they're in the ownership meetings and you got the in group and you got the out group. Jerry Jones heads up the in group. Everybody loves Jerry. The out group I, I, is Mark Davis <laughs> and the Las Vegas Raiders. And Daniel Snyder has been really good about currying political favor in these quarters. And that's what's keeping him above water because his stewardship of the franchise is absurd. When I moved to this town about 15 years ago, 15 plus years ago, the Washington football team was actually the number one over the Cowboys, number one most valued franchise in the National Football League. This was before the Jerry Dome. And now it's moved down that list. So, I mean, Dan Snyder is like the bartender at spring break who doesn't get tips. (laughs) That's a great line. That's so true. That's a walk-off line right there. Okay. You're done. You're done. Thank you. Hey, my name is Dave Zyron. Thank you very much. See you later. Appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. There you go. Hey, Dave. Uh, really hey, when can we uh, when can we see the documentary? That's the question. Yeah, it'll be when out we this week. It? It's going to have a website. It's going to have a streaming service. Follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports. All the info will be out there. Can't wait. Looks excellent already. Trailer looks great. I'm sure the final product is terrific as well. Dave Zyron. We always love talking with you. We'll catch up with you soon. Sounds good, Michael. Everyone in the locker room, including the coaching staff, knows how we all feel about one another and how much confidence we have in one another. And um, my words, my display of emotion, which I, I do my best to control up here, is that it, I've got conviction over it. And, um, you know, this is not the same old Jets. But until we win, until we prove it, which is on us as coaches and on us as players, the, the shots will keep on coming. And so we welcome them, keep bringing them. It's not going to change our mission, and that's to bring this organization and this fan base a winner. All right, uh, we know who that is. It is Robert Sala, a head coach of the New York Jets. And Connor Rogers, I had to play that off the top. I know you are a Jets fan, a Jets, a Jets observer. You're what? You're a Jets investor. That's who you are. So <laughs> it's bad um, money, Michael. It, it, it's bad money. That's but one day, one day it's going to happen uh, for the Jets. How, how do you feel about what what Robert Sala is doing and what he's saying about the Jets? Do you believe in the? Do you believe in the vision? Do you believe in the direction that Joe Douglas and Robert Sala will take the Jets or try are trying to take the Jets? Yeah, I think he's in such a tough spot, right? Because he walks into that job and takes over a franchise that hasn't seen the playoffs in over a decade. And he's probably looking at it, let's be honest, it's his first head coaching job in the NFL. He's looking at it and going, man, I've only been here for one season, and I'm being judged on the 10 before me. And I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think it's unfair to Robert Sala. I think he deserves, like most coaches, that two to three year sample size to get your players in and show that your scheme works and your coaching works. But on the flip side, Jets fans, the Jets organization, they obviously had lived this much, much longer. And he's a smart guy. He has the awareness of that. So I think Joe Douglas has done a lot of good things. He's also had his hiccups. I think Robert Sala deserves a longer leash there. And he got he got really frustrated after criticism from week one that felt like criticism over a 10 year span. And I think it all bottled up and came out and he's aware of that and he knows until they win games nobody will treat them differently okay how about what he said i'm keeping receipts okay one why (laughs) uh two two what are you gonna do what are you gonna do with them he said you know i can't wait he said i can't wait to like bring them out 
I, I, I remember the names and, and who said what. All right, what are we doing? I, okay, we could do, like, we should be doing that. We should do that. That's yeah. fun. You're a Jets fan. If I come at you and say, man, the Jets will never, they'll never win. They haven't won since Super Bowl three, and they win Super Bowl 60, then you should come to me and be like, hey, see, uh-huh. Got you now. But why is he doing it? Why is he saying it? Right. It feels like something that should be saved for the fans, should be saved for the media, and even if players want to do that, right? I mean, there's plenty of players. Listen, you know me, Michael. I work in the draft business. There's plenty of guys that get evaluated the wrong way, turn to stars, and they thrive off of that, and good for them. I think it's awesome. Now, a head coach in the NFL, I don't think they have time for that, and that's why this felt like an emotional moment to me. But listen, I've been in New York. I grew up in New York my entire life, and every single coach or you know GM or whoever I've seen try to poke the bear and win a battle with the media, it never works. It never works yeah. because they'll just keep coming at you over and over again. No matter how well you perform, they will sit in the bushes and wait for that one low moment to attack you. So I think he walked away from those comments or stepped off of those comments real quickly in the middle of this week because he realized that. And you know what? They don't realize, Connor, that there's so much. Like, that's all we have to do. It's like they're, they're coaching football. So they're, they're, they're obsessed with, with, with study, film study and just trying to dissect opponents. That's all we're doing. So we're not studying like they are. We're talking about them. We have so much material. We're parsing every single word, every single flinch, body language. We're studying. So we just have more time to think about what they said and to take it to absurd levels. You can't win it. You can't win against the media. It's just too many angles. They got, they got more than you can block. I mean, it's not hindsight. It's not the extra guy. It's like two or three extras. Yeah, they have hindsight. You're exactly right. It's so easy to sit there because the media gets to react to Monday morning and be like, well, you did this and it didn't work. So you should have done this while the coaches are the ones that have to make the decisions in the moment. And some guys get praised. But most of the time, the decisions that don't work out are the ones that are discussed the most. And that's what makes that job so difficult. But obviously, when they take those jobs, Michael, they know the deal. All right, Connor, let's talk. Uh, I know you're not one to overreact. Uh, I'm not either. Maybe not. Last year, Green Bay Packers started 0-1. They looked terrible. Lots of bad things were said about Aaron Rodgers. He lost his focus. The Packers are out. The Packers uh, won a division again right back to the playoffs. This year, Packers start 0-1. And Aaron Rodgers throws for fewer than 200 yards. Some similar conversations about the receiving core. Overreaction to be concerned about the Packers? I think so. And I really don't say that often after week one about anybody. Now, I will, you know, put a caveat on this that I think Green Bay is a really, really good team. I think in an NFC that does not stack up against the depth of the AFC, Green Bay is one of the best teams in that conference because of Aaron Rodgers. But. Michael, this just highlighted the things that now I have significant concerns about because I don't know if a fix is on the way, notably in that wide receiver group. But we'll start with the offensive line, right? They were out Elton Jenkins, and he was back at practice this week. That'll be huge for them. David Bakhtiari, how long are we going to have to wait for him to be right again is a big question. Is that really a fix that's on the way that we can rely on? And even if all of those things do get right with the offensive line, which would be huge for Green Bay, they got young wide receivers that I just don't know if they're ready yet. We saw Christian Watson drop a would-be deep touchdown. I like Romeo Dobbs a lot, but he fell to day three for a reason. He's not going to come in and be a superstar. He could be a really, really nice player. And you see right here, just miscommunication, drops, the pressure because the beat-up offensive line was really, really rough. That put even more pressure for the defense to be out on the field against a good offensive team in Minnesota that had no answer for Justin Jefferson schematically or from a talent standpoint. So Green Bay, I think they're a good team, but are they a Super Bowl team like they think they are going into the season? You have to be a little nervous right now. I started off the show today uh, talking about the, the rivalry between the Chargers and Chiefs. I understand that Chargers have won some games, and Justin Herbert looks great. They still haven't gone to the playoffs with Herbert there in those dynamic two years for Herbert. Uh, but the Chiefs, I, you know, it's funny how you know, Buffalo has leapfrogged the, the, the Chiefs in the conversation. 
So they can't beat them on the field in the playoffs. Last few times they played in the playoffs, one game not close. Last year's game, you know, a classic, but still, Kansas City two wins, yet they get passed by Buffalo. I think this is crazy. What? Why? Why don't people really understand what the Chiefs can bring as long as they have the structure they have right now with Andy Reid and and Patrick Mahomes? I'm with you all the way on this one. People just have to be bored, right? When I saw it over the summer, I I didn't understand how we got to the Bills being, sure, you want to make them one of the Super Bowl favorites, that's fine. They're an incredible roster. They have a great quarterback. They have continuity everywhere. They were sitting around plus 500 where the Chiefs, you could find them at plus 1,000, plus 900, not even in the same stratosphere for a Super Bowl. Come on now. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me, Michael. And then, You look at what they did in the draft. They had an incredible draft. They got help on defense. They got help on offense. They have continuity on the offensive line. They have Patrick Mahomes, who's just on another planet at all times, in my opinion. And people got bored of him, too, it felt like. They played their starters in the preseason, and then what happened? They came out week one, and they were full throttle, pedal to the metal. There was no, hey, we need more time. Hey, this is an extension of the preseason. They're like, no, we're playing our November football the first week of September, and they bulldozed Arizona, bulldozed them. A playoff team last year, Arizona. Not a team that was picking top five in the draft, a playoff team. So Kansas City, I, I, it seems insane to say this, but they are somehow the most severely underrated team in the NFL, and they got disrespected this summer, and it looked like they took all of that out on week one. We, we saw uh, Sky Moore, the rookie there. Uh, what, do you think of, what do you think of him, and what do you think of some of the other rookies? I know only one week, but this is what you do, and I know you just, you're kind of watching guys. Hey, how's my guy here doing? How's my guy here doing? What do you think of Sky Moore? Yeah, he just brings an element to the offense that they obviously needed after they traded Tyreek Hill. Sky Moore has enough juice to win down the field. He tracks the ball well. You could throw him the ball underneath and he can make guys miss. Uh, He's got really good acceleration off the line of scrimmage. And that's going to open things up for Travis Kelsey in the middle of the field or the intermediate level of the field. Same with Juju. They throw to their running backs. They like to roll out Mahomes. You could ask Sky Moore to try to win at all three levels of the field. So listen, nobody's going to replace Tyreek Hill. But the versatility and how much this offense expanded now, looking many different ways instead of usually two directions, Tyreek or Kelsey, kind of makes it just as difficult for defensive coordinators where they don't know how the Chiefs are going to attack them each week. And at the end of the day, when you've got to defend Patrick Mahomes, it doesn't matter who's out there, but the Chiefs have a really, really good offense around him. All right. We've seen some young players just come into this league and start wrecking immediately. On uh, both sides of the ball, I mean, Micah Parsons, oh, yeah, it was not, a, not a surprise. He was great in college, but the way Dan Quinn used him with the Cowboys was perfect. Really spoke to his skill set. Uh, who are a couple of guys in college football you're watching now? A couple of games into the season, you say, oh, wait till they get to the league. This thing is just, it's not only is it going to continue, it's going to go up a notch. Man, I mean, there's some obvious ones at the top, right? Everybody's watching Will Anderson, the edge rusher on Alabama. Everybody's watching Jalen Carter, the defensive lineman on Georgia. Those guys are destined for the top five. So if you're looking at how the NFL draft's going to go without the variable of the quarterbacks in play, Bryce Young on Alabama, C.J. Stroud on Ohio State, they're going to be top ten picks with a couple other guys trying to find their way in. Those two defensive studs are just total difference makers. And then if you're looking for one that I think doesn't get enough love, I look at the middle of Baylor's defensive line and Siaki Ika. He's a nose tackle. He's over 300 pounds. I mean, he really is kind of this Vita Vea clone who's been a lights-out player mm. for the Bucks. has won a Super Bowl there. Uh, Siaki Ika is somebody that doesn't get as much attention because he plays for Baylor, who's been a really good program over the last two years, but he's an absolute stud. So I look at next year's draft and see superstar talent on the defensive front, deep at quarterback. I think we have five go in the first round. There's plenty of wide receivers once again. So I think actually next year's draft, the 2023 class, has a lot more juice, a lot more excitement than 2022 because all the stars in it play vital positions. All right, I saved this one for last uh, just because I know how much this means to you. I'm here with you, brother. I am here uh, for support. If you just need somebody to talk to, I got you. I'm going to get you through the month of September into early October. The lead is down to a half game. The New York Mets are leading the Braves by a half game, and it just got swept by the Cubs. 
So, hey, man, uh, what's going on? What's going on with the Mets? Like, it, it, give, me, uh, give me some insight here. We are at DEFCON 1 right now. Listen, it, it's, uh, it's brutal right now. It's brutal to watch. You know what? It's one thing if they were going out against contenders, right? They took two or three from the Dodgers. Everybody's riding high. But when you drop two or three against the Nationals, you get swept at home by the Cubs, where we don't even know who their starting pitchers are half the time or more than half the time. Uh, I'm not in a good place right now, Michael. I knew we were going to get here. I, this is usually how yeah. we go out. The September yeah. woes are hitting. I, I need this team to turn it around. I need Max Scherzer to return. And I need them to win the division. I can't deal with the stress of the wild card or throwing DeGrom no, and no. Scherzer in the wild card and then being in the divisional round with the back end of the right. rotation against whoever. Uh, this is this is not good right now. Not good at all. It was a lot more fun, Connor, when uh, the Yankees saw their lead just kind of shrinking, shrinking. And the Mets were just kind of holding serve. They're yeah. up by four games, five games. That was fun. And see the Yankees. At one point, the Yankees up by like 12, 14. Then it was down to 10. Then it down to seven. I think it's at six right now. It, it did. Like, oh, yeah. see, we, yeah. we wanted to see the Yankees have a nice little collapse, but I'm not enjoying this with the Mets. I, I ride for the Mets. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you in spirit. Know that. I think they're going to win a division. It might be close, but they're going to they're gonna pull this thing out. Well, I appreciate that, the uh, the support here. And I think it's going to come down to that second-to-last series of the season when they have to go down to Atlanta. And, you know, they've played big in those moments before. They're going to line up Scherzer and DeGrom and Bassett, their big three down there. So it'll probably come right down to that second-to-last series. It's going to be a sweat. But I'm with you. I do think they pull it out. I'm, I'm trying to remain optimistic. It's all I can do right now. I love it. Connor Rogers, appreciate you, man. We'll talk to you Thanks, soon. Thanks, Michael. You know what I need to bring back? I'm just going to throw it out there. It's going to give you a little tease. My bets, your money. You remember that? I'm going to bring it back because I saw the Cowboys line. They're getting seven and a half against the Bengals. And I want that action. I want in. They can do it. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.